Megan, I know you're a real gamer. I know you love gaming, right? Yes. And uh, totally. I play I played a little bit of Stardew Valley. I okay. played some hours of The Sims 3. Okay. Um uh, Girl game doesn't count. Girl game doesn't count. No, no, no. no. Oh, oh, um Animal Crossing. The Sports Resort. Um okay. we play. I was really into that. What was your favorite we play game? Oh my god, the cow racing or cow uh, racing Yeah, play. that's fair. Um, the that's fishing, fair. the tanks. The tanks was literally the best. every game on that is like Anyone who says anything MVP. other than tanks is like baby brain. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh so we must have talked about we play. It's like honestly the best game. <laughs> ever. So we we've established Megan's a gamer. There's one other game she loves to play that we didn't talk about. Megan has over 500 hours in GTA Online. Megan is a huge. Oh. She bought all the shark cards. She has the flying yeah, motorcycle. Yeah, she's she's a toxic griefer. And why I'm mentioning this, Megan, is what if I told you GTA happened in real life in one very very specific point in time in Canadian history? Ooh. Canadian history. Wow. Mm-hmm. Are we going to talk about that today on yes. the Lately Capitalism show? Hello, welcome to the show. Yes. Okay. And we're okay. we're I'm going back to... I'm oh, yes. I'm seeing in my mind's eye. Lay it on me. GTA in real life. Where do you think in Canada it would be? There's only one place on Earth. <laughs> and it's not because you told me before. <laughs> no. Talking about. I feel like you could have deduced this one regardless. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that one, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that has to be Montreal. Exactly. So this is, what, our third or fourth time going back to Quebec? Oh, it's because of you, Jesse. You're just obsessed with them. And that's because every so time, every time I'm like, ah, oh, that ties a nice bow on Quebec's history, I discover something, <laughs> <laughs> like, even, even more, more insane. insane. Yeah, yeah. With our three episodes we've done in the past, you're like, that's it. That was all of Quebec. And then you're like, oh, no, wait. They did something else. That's yeah. crazy. So let's uh, let's recap for potentially new listeners. So in early 2021, we did a three-part series on the Quebec Biker Wars. And we tried to answer why so many Quebecois resonated with the leader of the Hells Angels, Maurice Mom Boucher. <laughs> Uh, the answer mostly coming down to he was francophone. At one point, he was working class, and mostly they just really like bike go fast. And you know, well, honestly, I kind of respect that. Same you thing know, for me. Like, yeah, Australians get Ned Kelly; they may as well get the mom. Right? Yeah, Maurice, that's our guy. Uh, and later in 2021, we did a two-parter discussing Quebec's Kayat Revolution and like all the cultural uh, developments, as well as the referendums of the 80s and 90s. We talked about all that uh, fun stuff, but there is one specific period of time, one specific Labor Day weekend in 1972 that is one of the wildest stories in Canadian history that I feel like is not properly covered in full. And by that, I mean, you might have heard of one or two of these events, but it's important to look at all of them in the chronological order within in which they occurred. Ooh, this is an episode of 24. Honestly, kind of. And you'll understand what I mean by that. So, let's go back to Labor Day weekend. It's a long weekend. And it's it's more than just, you know, good time, goof off, go have, you know, beers and pizza getty with your friends. <laughs> it's like... I forgot about pizza getty. Oh, never forget about pizza getty. There's a lot of sociocultural and geopolitical issues occurring before, during, and after this weekend in 1972. So, for the sake of organization, we're going to go chronologically... As the events happened, talk about the events, and then 
later on cover the aftermath of those events. And uh, That's my favorite way to talk about events. And it's the perfect thing, because instead of going like, oh, this, and this is the aftermath, it's like, no, some of these are kind of interconnected in very bizarre ways. So let me set the scene for you. Story takes place about a year after the end of the October Crisis, which is the FLQ's multi-month campaign of domestic terrorism. So FLQ, French-Canadian Nationalist Group, we've talked about them, and uh, Chance and myself may have sung their praises in the past. I'm not going to loop Megan into that. Uh, We're card-carrying members. Yeah, that's right. We are the English FLQ. (laughs) No doubt about that. We believe in all the same things. Yeah. So, just very quickly, Quebec experienced the Quiet Revolution in the 1950s and 60s, grand cultural reawakening. They nationalized a lot of otherwise privatized natural resource companies, helped spur their economy, massive breakthroughs in education, healthcare, all across the board, and a burgeoning sense of French-Canadian identity and national pride. The October Crisis was like a physical culmination of that, and of course also resulted in Pierre Trudeau evoking the War Measures Act for the first time, which... 50 years later, his son would end up doing the same thing, which is kind of fun. Uh, and, like, in a, in a perfect encapsulation of, like, the general, like, decay yeah, of, of Canadian not just society. This country, like, obviously, it's every, like, every Western nation, but, like, specifically Canada. His son literally does the exact same thing because some guys are causing gridlock in mm. Ottawa. Uh-huh. It's so fucking funny. He made, no, he put the War Measures Act in. Pretty much, like the more or less. No, he didn't. Well, it, even the, like like the modern equivalent of it. It's, yes, it's, it's a, it is a like you know a shadow of a shadow of history, right? Mm. First is tragedy, then is farce. Yeah. So it's a year later. You know, it's it's a pretty bumping time in 1972, uh, Montreal. Everybody in the city has a lot to look forward to with the long weekend. Part of the reason being, in addition... So many affairs to have. Affairs to have, nightclubs, strip clubs, club super sex in its prime. But also, the city would be hosting Game 1 of the much-anticipated summit series between Canada and the Soviet Union. Oh, what the fuck? So Montreal... Summit series of what? Hockey! Oh. The summit series. So this was like... Montreal was in a flutter. There was, like, a very tangible sense of optimism and excitement in the city. They've got, at the time, and I'll go into more context for the Summit Series and why it was so huge at the moment, but it's like, this was essentially the biggest hockey game in Canadian history at this point, and Montreal got to have game one of what was supposed to be an eight-game series, so people were fucking fired up. Mm -hmm. But before we could get to that game, I'm going to take you into the world of intrigue. Allow me to uh, set the scene. Uh, The late night of August 30th, 1972. The sound of a powerboat engine disrupts the ambient hum of industry in Montreal's harbor. The few witnesses present at the harbor that night saw three men depart from the harbor wearing hoods. They could hear two of the three of them speak, and they, they spoke in fluent French, and the third was an anglophone. All three men stood roughly five foot Six. So three short kings leaving the harbor in a boat. <laughs> they were going well, after guys, the Templars. Remember, this is a historical story, so everybody in the past was. was yeah, that's, that's true. Why, that's why the towers <laughs> used to be really small. That's exactly They're right. actually the tallest men in Montreal. That's why it was noteworthy. <laughs> By the time the powerboat and its three occupants arrived at their location, Thursday was gone, and Friday, September 1st, had arrived. The long weekend was here, and these three men just planned to start it with a bang. 
Now, I will say the exact details of how they did what they did next are still mostly unknown, but what we do know is that once these three men reached a 200-foot cliff on the Lake of Two Mountains, they essentially, from the base of the cliff, using their boat as a launching point, started climbing the cliffside using climbing tools, pickaxe, and ropes. When they reached the top, they saw the resplendent summer home of Agnes Meldrum, the owner of a Montreal moving company. They broke in, stole $50,000 of artwork, and rappelled back down, making a clean getaway into the warm summer night. Also, just letting you know, Dean literally lost his shit at you saying Thursday was gone. (laughs) Yeah. could not stop laughing. Thursday was gone. (laughs) Such a perfect phrasing. Yeah. I can be thinking about Thursday was gone for like weeks. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I tried to write this in the most pulp style possible. <laughs> Thursday was gone. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. I I legitimately read a lot of like terrible detective things and tried to pepper that in whenever yeah. I could. No, it's good, it's that, good. That's it's so evocative. Yeah. It's just like a shitty writer who thinks that he's like, oh, like that's that's a new one. Yeah, Thursday's gone, baby. That's the title of the show. <laughs> so we have seen. What we could describe as a, a rather daring midnight art heist in Montreal, a.k.a. a real-life GTA server. And right. uh, I just want, you to, just want you to remember... You will see someone walking around with a bazooka <laughs> yeah. in downtown Montreal. Yeah. It, it, like, they're not firing it. Like, they're not aggro. It's just, like, they just have that sort of passively... They're, they're, they haven't cycled through their weapons. It's just, like, on their person, mm-hmm. you know? So now that we've firmly established that Thursday's gone, we now move into the evening of Friday. So it's Friday, September 1st. You know, it's Friday of a long weekend. What do you do on a Friday of a long weekend? You go out to drink, right? You know, you got a couple you days off. in your car for 17 mm-hmm. hours trying to get out of the city at the same time as everybody else. It's That's awful. right. That's my experience in Toronto on a long weekend, at least. Well, I can tell you there were three guys that were certainly sitting in their car, but we'll get to them in a second. So we're both right. So in Montreal, there is a wonderful spot known as the Bluebird Cafe that has the adjoining wagon wheel bar on the second floor. So the first floor is like a classic style French Canadian cafe, you know, get a coffee, smoke cigarettes, eat pizza getty, have a bagel, the whole nine yards. And then upstairs, the wagon wheel bar is, since this is mostly an Anglophone population that attends it, a country and Western bar. So, very yeehaw. big part of Anglophone culture the in Montreal. Yeehaw. Yeah. No, no, they're English. It's just yeehaw. You're good. Okay. The club had particular significance for Heather Condon Lohengrin and her husband Jerry Lohengrin, who had met the Wagon Wheel Bar, got engaged at the Wagon Wheel Bar, and on the night of September 1st, 1972, uh, Heather was celebrating her 21st birthday. So, that's nice. Good night oh, out. It's a Friday. A sequence of... Uh... They getting, got engaged, getting engaged before, she was before 21. 21. To be fair, it's the 1970s. Like you, you got engaged at 13, and they're French Canadian, so they were probably engaged at birth in like a, an arranged marriage. Canadian oh yeah, that's far. true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. They were just fucked. It's Montreal, you know. It, it, it's slightly different there. There's a force multiplier. <laughs> so they're far from the only people going out that night, swinging Friday night, kind of a a warm summer's evening, and. Uh, you got about 200 people at the bar around 10.45. 200 of those people crammed in tightly. And uh, we were looking to add three more to the count. Three men. James O'Brien, a Mick. 
Gilles Eccles, a French-Canadian, and Jean-Marc Boutin, another French-Canadian, were trying to get into the bar, but they were denied entry because, by all accounts, all three of them were completely trashed. So the three men returned to Eccles' car and he drove away. Oh, classic. <laughs> so, rather than heading home or even heading to a different bar, you know, probably a French-Canadian one where they really don't care, they decided to drive to a nearby gas station. Boutin and O'Brien filled a jerry can with fuel and got back in the car, and the crew would return to the Bluebird Cafe a few minutes later. So, the bouncer did not see these three men return. He was busy with patrons at the time, as Boutin and O'Brien made their way towards the entry point while Eccles stayed in the car. And it's important to know that to get up to the wagon wheel bar, you have to go up a set of stairs right next to the entrance to the Bluebird Cafe. So, it's never a good sign when the only... Like, main exit for a bar is up a bunch of stairs. Yeah. Uh, basically. were, like, rickety and metal and terrible. Uh, they were wood. That much we certainly oh, know. Even worse, given what I think is going to happen. Because Boutin and O'Brien would start spilling gas all over the stairway, with O'Brien lighting a match and dropping it as the two men fled back to Eccles' car. That's uh, very evil. That's like one of the most evil things I've heard in a while. Like you're mm-hmm. mad at the bouncers who decide to kill a bunch of random people. Now, they, Bhutan and O'Brien claimed that they were just trying to scare the bouncer, but with how much gas had been poured on the stairs, well, you can be the judge. So, uh, Heather Lowengrin recalls seeing a man pouring flammable liquid on the stairs and says he wanted to run after him. Oh, sorry, this is Jerry Lowengrin. Wanted to run after him, but it was too late. The arsonist had lit his flame. It was an older building, and it was just poof. At that time, we started screaming, fire, fire, and ran through the kitchen because we knew there was a back exit. The front stairs were burning, and two of the emergency exits in the wagon wheel bar were partially blocked. Mm. Patrons trapped upstairs had few options to escape. The building was not up to fire code, as you could imagine, and what few remaining exits they had were, well, either totally unavailable or unable to accommodate this many people trying to escape. So these are the options that people had. They could try and go through the back back door in the kitchen, out onto a folding fire escape, or leap out of the second-story building in the, using a window in the women's washroom into the parking lot below. Fuck. As Bedard, who uh, was basically... So there's this man, Bedard, he's playing there with his band. Uh, country and Western, he says, Someone broke down one of the doors, allowing... Bedard to escape, but the drummer of his band, Eddie Crevier, died. Montreal cop Andre Manville was the first responding officer, and he recalled trying to use his coat to smother the flames, searing the screaming patrons. The sound of sirens rang throughout the downtown core as multiple engines and ambulances responded to the fire. Essentially, the ambulances were ferrying survivors to the Royal Victoria Hospital, where they were assessed by everybody they had to hand, given it's a holiday-long weekend. Obviously, it's a pretty busy spot. And uh, ER doctor Ken Flagel basically recalls that he could smell smoke, there was blood, glass, and soot all over the place within minutes because everybody was just covered. Hmm. So what, it would, What's the final numbers? We will get to that. So, 50 firefighters end up battling the blaze, and it takes them over five, or sorry, yeah, over, yeah, five hours to get everything put out. Uh, Five of those 50 firefighters would be hospitalized because of smoke inhalation, because at this time, they didn't have the rebreather available in the Montreal Fire Department. So they were just... have one of your your boyfriend firefighters just breathe. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. That's that's why the calendars, they weren't just for eye candy. They were actually showing valuable life-saving techniques. That's right. So 
once the fire was extinguished, essentially the fire crew then had to go through the bar and tally up the damage, both human and, of course, physical. So, uh, this was a quote from CBC- CTV news reporter Bob Benendetti. When I saw Rich Campo, who was the fire department director at the time, he was in tears. I knew something was wrong, and he told me, you don't want to see what's up there. The young people who tried to leave the bar were stacked up against beer cases at the front door. So, in a basically just trying to like climb the cases to avoid the fire. And when they say stacked up, they mean like eight, nine, ten people just on top of each other in a burning heap. Climbing up and then inhaling the smoke. Yep. So, witness testimony gave the police a solid lead. So, Jills Eccles is uh, apprehended around 3.30 Saturday morning, but Bhutan and O'Brien are nowhere to be found. While the police searched for them both, the coroner's office and the firefighters counted the bodies on the scene. Their initial estimate was 42, but that would eventually be brought down to 37, with bodies pressed against walls, doors, and windows. Several were found stacked on top of one another in the bathroom, and all had died from a combination of smoke, inhalation, and severe burns. As news of the tragedy trickled out to the general public, there were outpourings of grief and anger, but the city made no time to mourn. As you see, they were about to host the first game of the much-anticipated Summit Series. As was tradition in Montreal, hockey would come first. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm going to implement a new section in this uh, series where if this is real-life GTA, mm-hmm. during this long weekend, we need to have our resident crime expert and video game connoisseur, Megan, Oh. Uh, pl- give a wanted rating out of five stars <laughs> uh, to six all of stars. The crime. Oh, yeah. six stars. Of yeah. Course. So, Megan, just yeah. for just for a bit of uh, uh, context, one star is like, oh, the cops are around; they're gonna try to arrest you. Two stars is they send vehicles after you. Three stars is like, you know, more like they send the, the big vans, the helicopter. Four stars yeah. is the SWAT. Five stars is like FBI, and six stars is the military. So, what yeah, would you? Like tanks are yeah. So, what, how many stars would you give Bhutan, O'Brien, and Eccles? First of all, I didn't even need to know that rating system because I play so much uh, mm-hmm. of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. theft auto. Yeah, but you play it with uh, cops modded out of the game so you don't have to kill them. <laughs> you told me that. <laughs> right. you, you couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I would say it sounds pretty sad and a lot of people die mm-hmm. and I would imagine they want to find the people. So, mm-hmm. I would say maybe like one of the upper numbers, like... Uh, uh, four or five. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's very fair. Okay, but what about our original one, the uh, the the cool art thieves in oh. the boat in the dead of night? Yeah, what would you rank the uh, the August thirtieth oh, art heist? Um, I think uh, as a person that doesn't own any fancy art, what? Of course, Dean's favorite painting that he bought from Valley Village. Um, it's gorgeous. And the cow stool. Um, <laughs> oh my God! Where is the cow stool? That's a good point. Where they, is in this the apartment? cow stool? They, they had they, they had a stool painted like a cow with udders. It was, Maybe we gave it to it was a, very a cute. Roommate or something. Um, yeah. What would you give that one on a scale of say, one to six? Yeah. You know what? As as now as I dwell on the cow stool, I was gonna say like if your art gets stolen, like. Haha ha on you, um, but I would be so sad if someone had, would have stolen that cow stool from my apartment. So <laughs> I would say like you gotta give it a three. Okay. I'm gonna go on record saying that anyone who steals art is cool and should not be prosecuted. Mm. Yeah, that, that's fair too. I think as we 
I, I, I've heard a few times random people on the internet say that uh, fine art is just a money laundering scheme. Mm-hmm. And Correct. I have One no idea feet. anything about it, so I'll just agree with that. Um, yeah, I'd probably go with two stars. You know, nobody got yeah. hurt. All right. Let's get the boring hockey bureaucracy bullshit out of the way. It's Saturday, September 2nd. So here's how it goes. Up until 1961, Canada would send their top amateur team to world competitions for hockey, usually winning gold medals. Canadian international dominance would end in the early 60s as the Soviet Union started to take over. The Soviet national team was basically a bunch of professional players that were given uh, roles in the military, like cushy titles, so they could continue to play international hockey. And the Soviet Union had the first, like, sports, science, and, like, medicine nationalized program. So they were really good at a lot of sports. In 1969, the NHL works with Hockey Canada to create a trial program where they would allow nine professional players to join the otherwise amateur Canadian team for international competition, which lasts about a year. And then the governing hockey body, the IIHF, was like, nah, we don't really like this. So Canada would withdraw from the IIHF because they couldn't send their pros to play against the Soviets. With this in mind, in... 1971, Canada and the Soviet Union agreed to a, quote, best-on-best series. So four games would be played in Canada and four games would be played in Moscow. And there's nothing officially at stake, but it's the Cold War, so it's like bragging rights, national pride, and all that stupid bullshit. You know how it is. So, prior to the start of the series, Hockey Canada director Alan Eagleson had to personally settle with a Montreal man who had sued the Soviet Union. Why did he sue them? Well, he was suing the Soviet Union for the cost of damages for his car, which had been destroyed during the invasion of Czechoslovakia. So, because there was an active court case going on against the Soviet Union, unless Alan Eagleson uh, paid the settlement, (laughs) Canadian officials were not going to let the Soviet Union players have their equipment. They were going to hold it and confiscate it to guarantee payment for this Montreal man whose car was destroyed. (laughs) Wow, weird. Okay. Which is one of my one of my favorite parts of this entire story. That's really good. When I read that, I was like, holy fuck, that's awesome. So the Summit Series nearly didn't happen <laughs> because a Montreal guy, some Czech living in Montreal, got his car back home destroyed. How how would he possibly influence that much? Like just because, this one guy. Because so everyone hated the Soviet Union in the Western world. So and any they excuse all knew about this one guy whose yeah. car got blown up? Like, well his family back home called him and told him that and he was like, What the fuck? It and was, he was like a random civilian? Yeah, in Montreal. So he had lodged a, a, a lawsuit against the Soviet Union years prior, and then when they were coming to Canada to play hockey, they weren't going to be allowed to play until the payment was guaranteed. And they were like, we're not going to pay for this Rube's car. So <laughs> Alan Eagleson had to settle it out of pocket. That's so funny. All right. So Team Canada, they feature all the best players in the NHL, and that includes a lot of key players both on the Montreal Canadiens, such as Ivan Corlier, Pete Mahovlich, Serge Savard, Frank Mahovlich, Guy Lapointe, and Ken Dryden. But there were also other Quebecois on the team, so guys that weren't on Montreal but played in the NHL, like Gilbert Perrault and Marcel Dion. And these names are going to mean nothing to probably either of you, but a lot of those names are like all-time greats. Like These are really good hockey players. Well, Dion, I recognize. Isn't there a new Dion playing hockey? Well, Dion Sanders. Is yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's football. Megan knew that. <laughs> Megan loves primetime. That's- uh, 
Uh, it's like Stefan Dion or something. Well, he's the leader of the Liberal Party, or he was. Or what about Celine Dion? <laughs> oh, well, I think my Canadian thing's confused. Uh, no, no Celine Dion at this point. But if she had sang for game one, you know, th- things would have been different. That's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, he is just a diplomat. Yes. Why did I think he was a hockey player? I, I, I don't know. Because <laughs> he's French-Canadian. So, Canada was, like, heavily favored in the series. Not just by the Canadians, but by, like, the hockey world in general. Some people... Like, and we're talking sports experts are like, oh, this is going to be an eight-game sweep for Team Canada. They're going to stomp the Soviet Union's dicks in. It's Dion Phaneuf. Yeah. He, he, does he thinking. still play? I thought he retired. That's his first name, so I made a goof. N- yeah. Um, yeah, he ended his career last year. Okay, I thought so. So heading into Labor Day weekend, people in Quebec were excited to watch their compatriots establish hockey dominance. And for the rest of Canada, they saw this as like a good way to stress national unity, which one year removed from the October crisis, you know, obviously, uh, win-win. That being said, as the news of the Bluebird Cafe fire began to spread, many also looked to this hockey game as a much-needed escape from the horrors of the night before. So, symbolically and Literally, this is like an escape for so many people in the city who were in the process of coping with 37 deaths due to arson. Yeah, that's a lot of deaths. Yeah. So to say that the Montreal Forum was like an emotional arena was putting it lightly. And the Forum, according to Red Fisher, had its best face on for the game. The building's box seats were awash in red, white, and blue bunting. The floors shone. Even the lighting seemed brighter. The ice whiter. And over 18,000 people would be in the Montreal Forum on Saturday, September 2nd. Uh, The arena was extremely hot. So hot, in fact, the ice was not properly uh, insulated, and it was starting to melt in places. Well, that's not safe for the players, lol. You know how hot it was? 44 degrees Celsius. Oh my god. Near the ice? How? In the arena. How would they possibly play a game? So what was happening is patches of the ice started to melt, and you just had, like, wet spots. How, especially, like, in 72, how is the earth hot enough at that point? Well, you gotta remember, every single person in there is, like, smoking, there's no air conditioning yeah you have a couple fans and it's it's like september remember most hockey seasons don't start until late october so like this place was not designed for summer hockey in the first period canada jumps out to an early two nothing lead and i mean like on the first three shots they score two goals and the fans started to laugh in fact, they weren't polite. They thought the NHL would beat the Russians by 10 goals, says Rick Noonan. And <laughs> though Canada starts out hot, the Soviet team is unfazed. They began to chip away at a two-goal lead. Now, part of the reason why Canada thought this was going to be such a walk is that Canadian scouts had gone over to Europe to watch the Soviets play in uh, basically like a European Cup tournament where they played against the Swedish team. And the starting Soviet goaltender, Vladimir Tretiak, gave up nine goals. Oh. What they didn't know is that Tretiak was playing 12 hours after his honeymoon and was, by all accounts, so drunk he could barely stand. (laughs) That's sick. And he had just banged for the first time. That's right. That's That's right. You're not allowed otherwise. So uh, I'll tell you right now. Tretiak was not drunk in this game, and although he gave up the first two goals, the Soviets started to score in response, and by the end of the first period, it's a 2-2 game. Also worth noting, the Soviets are basically professional athletes, meaning they train well, they run, they work out, whereas the Canadians, although very skilled, uh, like to smoke in the dressing room and drink in between periods. That's yeah, cool. that's what you did in the NHL at the time. Yeah, also, this is a Drogo versus uh, Rocky. 
Well, Rocky wins in that one. Who's the guy who got fucking... Oh, Apollo Creed. Yeah. So, Canadian NHLers also were more comfortable playing against each other than with each other, so there was, like, no chemistry... And uh, because the Soviets played such, like, a fast-paced game, all the Canadian defensemen were, like, exhausted. In fact, by the end of the second period, like, they had no substitutes, and their starting defensemen could barely stand up. (laughs) So the Soviets just start fucking tuning them up, uh, eventually winning the game 7-3. That's fucking brutal. That's awesome. And according to Ken Dryden, the Montreal Canadiens goaltender, the forum was so quiet, he thought it was a funeral. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's pretty brutal. If you were really expecting a W and then, yeah. like, oh, you oh, yeah. That's not a great way to start oh. your long weekend, besides being burned alive, I guess. So the Canadians did not shake the Russians' hands, instead retreating immediately to the dressing room. Oh, Cow- party That poopers. fucking sucks. Come now, on. there is, some people have reported it was a miscommunication, and that there was, like, basically... Uh, they didn't think Russians shook hands. So <laughs> yeah, they, like, they oh. bowed at them. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, essentially, they were like, they weren't sure if the coaching staff had agreed on that. I I'm I don't really believe that. It's just that's the excuse yeah, that was given. I think they were butthurt. So the game mirrored the events of the Labor Day long weekend. Optimism and excitement turned into shock, horror, and anger, albeit on a much more symbolic scale. Still, little at the time did anyone know this was not the end of a very eventful weekend in Montreal. Now there was one more event that was coming up that was not nearly as tragic as the Bluebird Cafe fire or nationally significant as the Summit Series loss, but one that had a great deal of cultural significance in Montreal, especially between the working class and the upper class. One event that captured the public's attention and gave the Montreal police another criminal investigation to deal Von with. Von Holm was assassinated. <laughs> That's right. Found dead in Montreal, Quebec. <laughs> so no no real no real crimes. Uh Actually, you know what? No, Megan, on a scale of one star to six stars, how would you rank the destruction of the Montreal man's car by the Soviet Union Army? Oh, uh, one. Okay. Fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Who cares about a car? Fuck that. So, it is now Sunday, September 3rd. And we're going to uh, zoom over from the Montreal Forum over to the Montreal Museum of Fine Art for a moment. Now, the Museum of Fine Art was established in 1860 and originally served as basically an art appreciation society, starting to display exhibits in 1870 and 1880, mostly donated by Anglophone captains of industry. So rich English people donated a lot of the art to the Montreal Museum at this time. Now, in 1913, uh, the MMFA, the Fine Arts Museum, would build its first exhibition pavilion in an area known as the Golden Mile, because it's the central location for all of Montreal's most, most wealthy people, which in 1913 means English people. Mm-hmm. So the aforementioned Quiet Revolution saw the Anglophone domination of Montreal start to wane as they lost a lot of their cultural control, as well as some of their economic control with the nationalization of industries that had been otherwise owned by Anglophones. In fact, during the October crisis, many would leave the city altogether. So you see a lot of, not, well, white flight, but English flight specifically. Gotcha. So with the patrons leaving, the Montreal Museum of Fine Art had to start slashing its budget. And by 1972, it had gone from a strictly private venture to a semi-public non-profit organization. You love to see that. Yeah, hilarious. So funny. And in the weeks leading up to the Labor Day long weekend, the museum was undergoing some rooftop repairs. Basically, two weeks before the Labor Day weekend, uh, some men were spotted across the street from the museum's pavilion, sitting on chairs, wearing sunglasses and smoking. 
When questioned by the person who reported the incident, they claimed to be museum employees, but when investigators looked for the chairs on the roof after what happened happened, they didn't find any sign of anybody being there, and there were no fingerprints or other evidence left. So there were people essentially just watching the roof of this museum two weeks before the Labor Day long weekend. It's also important to understand that the burglary alarm connected to the museum's skylight had been disabled during the duration of construction. They had removed a pane of glass and replaced it with a plastic sheet. Mm, So around 11.30 p.m. on Sunday, September 3rd, three men arrive at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. One man with spikes on his boots climbs a telephone pole and uses it to access the roof of the pavilion. Once there, he lowers a construction ladder down to two accomplices. As the two climbed up, the first man removed the plastic sheet, attached a hook and pulley system, and once it was in place, three 50-foot nylon ropes were lowered. The men slid down these ropes and entered the pavilion. So, they're there for about an hour and a bit, and around 1.30, they encounter one of the midnight security guards at the museum, threatening him with a sawn-off shotgun and overpowering him. Ben Stiller. That's right. Uh, French-Canadian Ben Stiller, so he's doing blackface. <laughs> so, at, at one thirty, they encounter Ben Stiller, they overpower him, and then they fire a shotgun blast into the ceiling to get the attention of the other two guards, who would wander into the pavilion like NPCs in a Metal Gear Solid game. <laughs> yeah. And be instantly overpowered and immobilized. The minute the exclamation mark appears huh? over their heads, they're done. Just a bucks. So, now that they have all three of the Midnight Guards taken care of, none of them are harmed, but they're all, you know, tied up. Uh, They left one man behind to watch the guards as the other two began gathering paintings and valuables, with the initial plan being to use the pulley system to move themselves and their loot back up to the roof, and then they were going to lower it down the ladders and uh, escape. I can't believe all these art heists in one weekend. I know. So the plan changes a bit when they discover that one of the guards has a key item on him, which is the keys to the panel van for the Museum of Fine Art. So they're like, oh, great. This is awesome. Instead of, like, carrying them up onto the roof, we're just going to take them out a side entrance and load them in the van and leave. Unfortunately, when they went out a side door to find the van, uh, they went out the side door where the alarm was still active. Oh, shit. Uh, (laughs) So... The alarm system is I'm tripped. I'm rooting for these boys so hard. Oh, dude, just you wait to hear what their plan is. <laughs> I read this and I had to read it three times to make sure I wasn't misunderstanding. So, how did you find all these events lined up? Is there like one Wikipedia article for this nope. weekend, or like nope. how did you know this all happened at the same I, time? I researched them all independently, and then I went, "Oh my god, <laughs> what the fuck?" I'm so, like. I was just thinking this uh, as you were describing this scene in particular, but like this whole weekend, like describing all these like particular events that you've been laying out would be such a good Tarantino movie. Exactly. It'd be like, it's like Pulp Fiction, but in Montreal. It'd be so much fun. And wait till you hear about like all the aftermath and everything. So these guys have set off the alarm. They're like, uh, le fuck, we got to get out of here. <laughs> so they scrambled to grab what they could, leaving behind roughly half of their take as they fled on foot down Sherbrooke Avenue. Are, oh are you ready for this? They didn't even take the van. They care well because they if the cops showed up, they saw the van was missing. They'd go looking for the van. So yeah. are you ready for this? They carried eighteen paintings and thirty nine smaller pieces, mainly jewelry and figurines, including just putting like jewelry and figurines in their pockets. Oh my god, this is like a Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. scene. 
<laughs> Among like holding paintings under their arms <laughs> yeah. and running down the street. Yes. Oh. Yes, they are. I'm imagining them like, you know how in cartoons someone has the pane of glass. Yeah. <laughs> 100% like that style of energy. So they end up stealing two 17th century Spanish pendants, an 18th century gold watch that had been owned by Montreal's first mayor, Jacques Viget. Among these paintings was a piece by Rembrandt. So the security guards free themselves about an hour later, and what's hilarious is the cops still hadn't shown up. They actually had to call the cops themselves. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. So they didn't have to run out of there carrying yeah. paintings. <laughs> you could have strolled whistling disc- Dixie the whole time. And you can kind of understand why the cops were busy that weekend, but it, it still strikes me as very funny. So... In their haste, they neglected to grab paintings by El Greco, Picasso, Tintoretto, and another Rembrandt, but they managed to get away with over $2 million of valuables, with the appreciated value being now over $20 million. Ooh. Did they ever find these guys? Oh, we're going to cover that. Don't worry. The guards gave the police a very rudimentary description. Three men, two speaking French, one speaking English, all approximately five foot six inches. It's our same guys. Oh yeah, that's sick. So we're gonna we're gonna go back to the Bluebird here, and let's let's talk about the aftermath. So in the days and weeks following the fire at the Bluebird Cafe, Montreal police would lean on Gilles Eccles for information on James O'Brien and Jean-Marc Boutin. The two managed in the hours after the fire to flee the province. One of them, actually, both of them, ended Which up direction west. Yeah. So they make it to British Columbia, and we're talking weeks later they're apprehended. The coroner who investigated the fire determined that all three should be held criminally responsible for the 37 deaths, but his report also criticized government officials at the provincial and municipal levels for how buildings were inspected in the city, basically saying that, like, this never should have happened to begin with, there should have been another exit on the ground floor, Uh, there should have been, these doors shouldn't be locked. Also, (laughs) one of the emergency doors uh, was blocked by a stove. Jesus Christ. So what do you put in front of the fire exit? Some chairs. Yeah. No, it's a stove. The stove is fucking ridiculous. So owing to the block fire exit, a lawyer for the victim's family proposed a $9 million civil lawsuit against the Montreal Fire Department uh, and bar owner Leopold Perret. So basically they're suing the fire department and the bar owner for negligence. Mm-hmm. Now, the defense for the Montreal Fire Department and the bar would be led by, and this seems extremely fucked up to me, uh, like a major conflict of interest, then Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau. What? Are, there, are mayors allowed to practice law? That does I mean, you can practice law, but I don't think you can defend your city's fire department in a civil case. I feel case. like a mayor should have other things to do besides, you know, sitting around in court and jerking off a judge. Oh, and trust me, he really jerked that judge off because the families eventually accepted a much lower settlement of $1,000 to $3,000 per victim. Oh, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, no. On August 31st, 2012, a memorial was unveiled by the city of Montreal to mark the 40th anniversary. Here is a quote that comes out of it. These were young people from working class families, Anglophone families. They went to Dunton High. They went to Montreal High. They didn't come from Westmount. They didn't come from Ouremont. So there was nobody in a position to speak up for them, which uh, I think is very telling. Which, the one thing that'll, de- like, other than language divide is class divide. In fact, class divide, you could argue, was still the largest divide in Montreal at that time. A mass was held, as well as a march 
by families of the victims with a photo exhibit at City Hall. So this was in uh, September of 2012. In May of 2012, the memorial had been installed at the south side of Phillips Square following a renovation, and Montreal actually marked the 50th anniversary of the fire as of September 1st, 2022. So the survivors still keep in touch to this day through social media. Despite getting older, they say they want to make sure no one ever forgets what they lived through. It's a celebration for 37 angels that will never be forgotten, says Heather Condon Lohengrin. So Jean-Marc Boutin and James O'Brien each plead guilty to murder, while Eccles accepts a charge for manslaughter. All three were paroled within a decade of their convictions. Eccles and Boutin have mostly lived quiet lives in isolation, both of them leaving the province. James O'Brien, on the other hand, had a much different kind of story. So he has struggled immensely since his initial release in 1982. He was convicted of nine charges related to impaired driving, convicted of theft, assaulting a peace officer, and production of cannabis. The most recent offense was 2007, where he was caught driving a car while impaired. He had been released in early 2022, but his parole was suspended when he returned, and he was returned to a penitentiary because he failed a scheduled urinalysis. He told the parole board he consumed three servings of punch during a birthday party and was only informed it was made with alcohol when it was too late. He spent the 50th anniversary of the fire behind behind bars so of the three major events that took place this weekend this is the one with the saddest ending and uh i promise you it does get better but this one is just objectively a massive failure yes there would be a lot of changes in terms of civil fire code afterwards to ensure something like this never happened again but you cannot undo the deaths of 37 people Let's talk very briefly about the Summit series, because this has been covered to death by everybody in the Canadian media. Basically, uh, Canada would suck the first half of the series, slowly make their way back. They were down 3-1 in the series uh, when they were playing the last four games in Moscow. Hilariously, one of the eight games was a tie. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess good thing they scheduled eight games, because they ended up needing seven. OT. Yep. So they're down 3-1 in Moscow. They win the remaining games on the schedule, uh, culminating with a goal by Paul Henderson. Henderson, a star for the Toronto Maple Leafs, was assisted by Quebec native and Montreal Canadiens right winger Yvonne Corvier. So seen at the time as a very symbolic moment where Quebec and Ontario are uniting to beat a common enemy. I'm not kidding. This is how it was phrased at the time. It's a pretty big moment in sports history, but I think the grander significance is maybe a little bit overblown. Mm, yeah. So, seeing as no one remembers it. Okay, well that's not true, but <laughs> you don't remember it. Okay. No one who doesn't care about hockey yes. at all. Yeah, I, I think that's more fair. Yeah. I mean, it was a very like it is a cool moment in sports history because it's like one of the few like true best on best series you're going to see. It was also very important for the city of Montreal and the province of Quebec. Although the series would end at the end of September, still having that symbolic victory helped a lot of people start to heal. Uh, in fact, the Canadian team, upon their return October 1st, were greeted by 10,000 fans at the Dorval Airport in the middle of the night. Mm. Wow. So, let's leave the Summit series and talk about something that's way more interesting, which is the aftermath of the art heist. And let me yeah. tell you something right now. Art heist plural. Oh, yeah. This one is the best part of this story, and that's why I'm glad chronologically it came at the end, but also, otherwise, I wanted it to be the last thing we cover. All right. Are we ready? Yes. 
So later that day on Monday, September 4th, they have a news conference about the art heist, which was initially pretty effective in publicizing the theft, uh, listing all the stolen paintings, giving a description of the suspects. Uh, basically, as soon as the Montreal police learned of the theft, they put out an alert on border crossings to make sure that these thieves couldn't flee south. Essentially, the police pretty quickly put together that the Montreal art heist was related to the uh, art heist at late, the uh, cliffside, you know, a few days earlier. So mm-hmm. they had two break-ins, but very little in the way of leads to follow. Basically, early on, they were like, okay... We think it's going to be art students. So they focus on the École des Beaux Arts de Montréal, believing that yeah, they had a port- role in this. Yeah, that's right. They thought it was Grimes. Uh, they put five students under 24-7 surveillance for a period of time, but eventually these leads would dry up. Part of the reason being, uh, they discovered that one of the three men was a middle-aged man, so well past his student years, as the quote says. Mm. Um, there's lots of people in my program doing it late in life, mm-hmm. judgy of these cops. <laughs> Megan, I agree with you. I'm just saying it's 1970s. They're like, no, no, no. There, there's no such thing as grooming, so there's not going to be an old person on campus. That's true. The Rodney Dangerfield movie College had not come out yet, <laughs> so there, there was no precedent. So they give up on the uh, art school, essentially. So, in many of art thefts, like historically, thieves look for ransom payments in return for the stolen works because it's really hard to sell paintings <laughs> that yeah, are stolen. Paintings, yeah. So, here's where it gets even more ridiculous. Within a week of the robbery, uh, the museum director receives a call from one of the thieves. A man with a gravelly voice and an accent described as, quote, European, gave the art director uh, basically directions around the city to... Uh, where he could find a piece of the stolen merchandise, which he does. He finds a pendant near McGill. So they're like, okay, this is legit. As a result of the negotiations, about a month later, the museum's insurance companies and the Montreal police set up a sting operation. An undercover detective posed as an insurance adjuster, so like that Matt Damon movie, uh, agreed to meet the thieves or a representative of theirs in an empty field in a city suburb, where he hoped they would uh, hand over about $5,000 for one of the paintings. However, when one of the local police cruisers passed by, completely unaware of the plans, the thieves were spooked and came to realize it was a sting operation and fled. So that's hilarious. Like, so they realize it's a sting, but not because of the actual sting. Just no, some dumbass cop. Yeah, just bumbled through the site. <laughs> that's sick. So the next day, uh, the thieves would call the director of the museum and complain that they had been set up, <laughs> which I also find to be very funny. Like, hey man, what yeah. the fuck? So a year later, we're now into 1973. An undercover officer is sent on a wild goose chase by the thieves. So, same thing as before, he gets an instruction to go to a random payphone, and they send him on a goose chase around the city, where they're like, here's the deal, leave $10,000 in an envelope at a sign at a vacant lot on St. Martin Boulevard, and then return to Henry Barassa phone booth, and we'll give you further details where the paintings are. So, at 8am, the caller calls the officer, and told him the paintings were at a motel in Laval, north of Montreal. The police go with great numbers to that hotel, search the building, and find nothing. So, wait, but they actually gave the money? Oh, yes. The $10,000 was never recovered. So, Sick. literally, these thieves got the paintings and then kept getting yep. more money from the cops, like, over and over. I was yep. trying to think about it, like, why steal a painting? Which, like, 
Because, I again, yeah, I think it would be, like, wh- who would the buyer be if it's a highly publicized mm-hmm. stolen painting? But then do they just steal them in general? Like, in other cases, too, like, just... Yep, to ransom them back. Yep. Okay. So basically, like the museum will pay them, the insurance company will pay the museum. Oh, okay. So they lost ten thousand dollars. They only found one painting years later in like a random, just (laughs) unrelated thing. And they're like, "Oh shit! Okay, we found the painting." But only one concrete lead ever materialized, and that occurred nearly thirty years after the heist had taken place. So this is 2000 and uh, roughly, actually, it's the late 1990s, early 2000s. So a man known only as Smith was flagged by an art dealer in Montreal as a person of interest. They would interview Smith, where he confirmed he'd been an art student at the time of the heist. In the course of their initial conversation, uh, the lead detective on the case, a man named Le Corsier, came to believe that Smith knew a great deal about the robbery, maybe even more than the police did. And what's interesting is that this Smith character was one of the five was uh, one of the five students kept under surveillance. Mm. And he told the detective that the rope used by the thieves to enter the skylight was not gray, but yellow, like the ones used at a school building, which was not reported in the paper. Mm. However, upon reviewing original file and ta- talking with one of the original investigators, the Corsier found that uh, yeah, like the information about the rope had been withheld, which made him highly suspicious of Smith. Furthermore, it was found that Smith had made a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar down payment to buy a house, as well as a local woodworking company. In 2010, a Quebec journalist named Sylvain Larocque interviewed Smith by telephone. While he adu- he denied any role in the theft himself, he claimed that professors and porters at the University du Québec à Montréal, as well as the art school, had been. Uh, were behind the robbery. So basically saying that the same people behind a robbery at a university a few weeks earlier were responsible for the two other robberies we talked about in Montreal. I gotta say, like, obviously I'm not gonna ever commit a crime and I'm not gonna steal any paintings, but it sounds really fun to be in university and plan a painting heist. Yeah, an art heist. So That's sick. like such a great bonding yeah, Extracurriculars are what makes college. Like, real, I feel like I really discovered myself not in classes, but sort of out of the classroom. Think of how much pussy he got. Oh my god. <laughs> like, genuinely. Say. Yeah. Uh, so like here's, how many proto-grimes was he nabbing? Mm. Here's where things really get to Ocean's Eleven-style hijinks. <laughs> so, uh, Smith would send the lead detective a link to a video in 2014. So we're talking years later. Oh my god, they're still at it? It's a Mercedes-Benz advertisement from Hong Kong in which bank robbers steal a briefcase from a bank vault, then escape in a Mercedes. They elude capture, but leave a briefcase behind. Inside it is a long-lost stolen Da Vinci painting. Holy shit. <laughs> that is literally so baller. That is so cool. So, some people believe that the paintings were destroyed, but Le Corsier believes they were likely sold through small dealers who probably didn't know that they were stolen, or didn't care if they were, and then sent to collectors who kept them private. So, he also notes that criminal organizations have found stolen art useful in other ways. For instance, during the 1994-2002 to Quebec Biker War... 
he learned that one member of the Montreal Hells Angels served as a fence for art thieves, selling stolen art to the Italian mafia at 10% of its price, who in turn used the names of dead residents in the affluent suburb of Westmont to fake provenance forms. So basically it's like, we'll give you a painting at a cheap rate, you give us provenance forms. And the case, just like hang them, in, like the mobsters just hang them in their houses yep. or something? Why yep, not? or send them back home or sell them to people in Italy. Like it's a fucking chain. So the case, they, they, like the Italian people, maybe wouldn't even know their story. Oh, zero chance. Or yeah, or didn't care. care. Yeah. yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> so the case is actually still open as of today. And here's one little bonus event. Detective LeCourcière lamented that early publicity generated by the press conference was quickly forgotten as the city grappled with the aftermath of the Bluebird Cafe fire, but also the evolving hostage taking at the Munich Olympics. On September 5th, 1972, 12 members of the Israeli Olympic team were taken hostage by Black September. This was an international news story, but especially relevant in Montreal for two main reasons. First, they were hosting the next Olympics in 1976, but perhaps more importantly, Montreal is a North American Jewish enclave. In fact, the second largest Jewish enclave in North America behind only New York City. That's why those are the two bagel places. That's right. And that's why Montreal was absolutely gripped by what was happening over in Munich. So this art heist was the top story in the city for about 12 hours. If you're unfamiliar with what happened in Munich, essentially the 12 hostages would be killed on September 6th. So it's easy to understand why the art heist was pushed aside and forgotten, giving the events preceding and succeeding it, which had far higher stakes. That, like, yeah, between the fire and that, like, these art thieves really made out, like, they literally did make, make out, like, bandits. But... I gotta say, I'm still struggling to understand this market for stolen art, because... I understand, like, paying 10% of it and then just, like, knowing that it's the original in your house. Like, sure, if you're a mobster, that sounds kind of fun. But a mobster reselling it to an Italian, like, rich person and being like, this is the original. Like, eventually, they would find out that it's missing from somewhere or the people who are missing it would, like, look in the world. And I feel like the only reason to have an original painting is because... you're selling it to other mobsters. Yeah. I guess so, but I'm I'm thinking like the only reason to have an original painting is I I genuinely think as in like an asset like they use it as investments like they just purchase it because it's worth a lot of money and then they hang it in their house. But like if you just wanted something that looks nice in your house, you would just get a recreation and it would literally do the exact same thing. No, so it, I feel it, like it, it's, it's so a power to have. Like, yeah, it's a power like, thing, an influence yeah, thing, and it is also yeah, a way to launder launder money. It's like oh, where did these? It's like oh. This $100,000, what did that go towards? Oh, it went towards the purchase of this Rembrandt. Oh, okay. I know, but that's just like, in, in my mind, like, the value of it comes from everybody else knowing that you have it and that it's worth that much money. Whereas, like, if you have to hide it or it's stolen and you can't really say it's the original, like, I feel like then it's not even worth anything. Like, yeah, but it, it, I don't know. say it even is stolen. Like, how's the Montreal police gonna like enforce that in Sicily? It's like, can you give it back? Yeah, especially no. like, if you're, you're, yeah, if you're an Italian billionaire, <laughs> yeah. like, Quebecois police are gonna come after you. So, part of the reason also why this story disappeared so quickly is it was hard for working class French Canadians to feel much sympathy over the robberies that targeted the Anglophones who had dominated Quebec society for the it's last hard century. For me to feel- sympathy right now (laughs) yeah fuck (laughs) them so we are now past the 50th anniversary of this insane labor day weekend and no 
other city is going to experience something like this, Canadian or otherwise. What was originally envisioned as like a weekend long party to celebrate hockey supremacy and glory turned into something obviously much, much different. It became a collective outpouring of grief over the tangible, so things like lives being lost and the very vain things like games being lost. And as the weekend ended, the minds of the average Montrealer was not on the you know, theft of paintings from some fucking English pavilion, but on the suffering of their friends and loved ones, both at home in Montreal and abroad in Israel. And, you know, I'd like to tell you that it was smooth sailing for Montreal after the weekend where GTA, directed by Quentin Tarantino, happened. But uh, as we've covered in the past, there was a lot of political tumult to come, including the referendums of the 1980s and 1990s, as well as the mass gang violence of the 1990s into the early 2000s. The repercussions of both are still felt in the city and the province itself to this very day. So that is Montreal Labor Day weekend 1972, a story that really, truly has it all. Megan, what would you rate the final art heist on that star scale from one to six, now that we have the full... I feel like it would be the funniest if you gave them the full, like... (laughs) Six star of the military. (laughs) That's the thing, is I want to give it six, but at the same time, like, the Canadian military would also not be able to figure this one out. No, they'd, like, they'd they'd run over the paintings with their tanks. Yeah, they would just kill, like... 50 innocent civilians yeah. while wearing a police uniform. <laughs> they, they would shoot like 16 grenade launchers at like every picture of somebody with a skin tone lower than eggshell. Sad. Yeah. I, I would give it, you know what, I, I think just given how comedically it ended, like, you can't, nobody got hurt, like, they didn't even steal a vehicle, yes, they stole $20 million worth of valuables, but I can't give them anything higher than, like, four stars, it just doesn't yeah. feel right, because nobody got hurt. Wow, and Queens has a Rembrandt now. Yeah, I wonder where they got it from. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. If you're a Queens art student listening to this, you know, there are no museums in town for you to steal from because, well, I mean, the only ones are on campus. But uh, maybe you should steal something cool, like, uh, hmm. What's something harmless that you could steal? Oh, like an Can NFT. We need an oh, NFT heist. Patches? Oh, yeah. True, true, true. Yeah, like, yeah. it's like you're, you're lowering somebody from the roof, like Mission Impossible style, so they can right-click on a picture of a monkey. all the <laughs> Queen's alumni pins from the alumni oh. and dole them out uh, to random people in the world, and then it's not special anymore. Okay, I actually like that idea. It's, it's like when you steal mints at a funeral, you know, from the yeah. big, big jar. It's the same thing. You've got a bunch of pins. Megan's, like, stuffing them in her jacket pocket and, and picking up the pace as she walks out. She's grabbed by campus security, and she does a cool form of, uh, like, Krav Maga to neutralize them. Yeah, she, she's got the girl disease where, like, you just have to steal everything. Mm, that's true. Down. It's part of her gatherer I, It's sad I, I don't have that, and I, never, I don't think I've ever stolen anything, and it's, like, what? alienating me from my gender. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, hashtag not like other girls. Megan has theft. Way. Yeah, you're feeling Dysphoria, yeah, theft to, like, dysphoria. Yeah, no, well, that's that's because most of the things girls steal are food, right? So if Megan Megan can't steal food, it would be like putting poison in her own mouth. You know? I did. I was at a pre last year, and we, there was a girl, and she just started like showing us all of her things in her house that she stole from the mall. And awesome. Like, Lol. That's that's, so that's fucking cool. And, like, Big stuff, too. I was like, girl, you are crazy. This is so funny. But anyway. Ah, So now that we've... What was that girl's name and address? Yeah. Her name was Megan. Would you like to know? Yeah. Uh, So now that we've covered 
the latest and I, I'm not going to say the end of our Quebec series because I'm sure I'll find something yeah, completely unhinged some or they'll be like was, yeah gorgeous like it was real, a real tapestry I feel like I, it was like a, a living painting of a city yeah, it, at a certain time, it, 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 it was beat, nice, it yeah. thrummed, it was it was Tarantino esque. I yeah. agree. I, I want a movie right now. You had yeah. tragedy. We, we you should had, write a screenplay. Yeah, like you had tragedy. You had hockey. You had hilarious police incompetence that didn't result in somebody dying, yeah. which is rare. What more could you ask for? Yeah, you. I, I think an underratedly funny part is just a, a random Montreal cop disrupting the sting operation, costing the city like twenty million dollars <laughs> <laughs> because he just drove through the wrong neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was I, I was looking for the uh, this the uh, how you say armacy <laughs> <laughs> trying to buy an on them yeah and that's uh we gotta respect Montreal and Quebec in general this could not happen in any other province like could, could you imagine an art heist in like Edmonton no <laughs> no you at Edmontoners get on it yeah you funny they'd like drive a truck through the wall. Yeah, like what was it? Just like a painting of an oil rig or something? <laughs> yeah, it's like, wh- could you imagine? Like, I don't know. Even, even in like in Kingston, ridiculous. Like, there's no, there's no level of like European adjacent <laughs> skill. Yes, and, it, it it adds and like mentality. an element of like culture or class. Well, because nobody that isn't European gives a shit about old fucking paintings. Yeah, <laughs> like you need to be deeply like. French European to care about this. That's why in Ocean's Twelve, the best thief was a French guy. Well, yeah, it seems like English Europeans just like love our chips, boats, and like architecture. Yeah, like all our love our crisps. Are, like, Simple. We as. have an old boat. We have an old pump. We have <laughs> yeah. an old mill wheel. Like true. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's no future, so they're sort of right to cling to that. Now, I mean, like yes, like English people did steal art, but that happened in, like, colonial times, and it wasn't really so much that they wanted to steal it, they just didn't want the original people to have it, you know? <laughs> there was, like, no yeah. intrinsic value. Museum discourse. Yeah, so yeah. There, were, there were no lasers that they had to dodge through to get to them, so yeah. it's just not cool. There were no, like, C-tier comedians they had to disarm and immobilize. <laughs> Although, it wouldn't surprise me if in France, Jerry Lewis was, like, the only night watchman for the, for the Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> he sees a pic- he sees the Mona Lisa and gets a hard on and has to waddle to the bathroom. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Oh lord, we're over an hour. Thank you, yeah. Jesse. A little lighthearted for the most part, <laughs> except for the thirty-seven deaths. But you know, you can forget it like the city of Montreal did and really just enjoy this episode. You know. Yeah, hopefully we get it out on time. Who knows? Hopefully everyone enjoyed yeah, our previous we apologize also for the. I I don't. <laughs> Dean apologizes. There's, there's been like a, a mass of technical difficulties. Mm. I promise that we're actually really competent and good at this. It's oh, yeah. just that uh, it's everyone else around us that is the mm. problem. None of us know how to turn on a computer, so once it's off, we have to like wait. Until <laughs> someone else yeah. turns it on. We need a handler. All right. Thanks for hanging out. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye.